Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the new editor of The New York Times. So there are a few jobs in journalism that generate the amount of speculation and gossip as the executive editor of The Times. Um, we've known for months now that Dean Bacay, who's been in that job, would be stepping down because he turned 65 in the fall. And the only question was who was going to succeed him and would that result in a change of course of the newspaper. The Times announced that Joe Kahn, who has been the managing editor of the paper and in the number two job, would be stepping up into Bacay's role. There's a widely held view that that is not going to result in major changes um, to the place. And in fact, that fact that we shouldn't be expecting radical change has been disappointing to some people who think that especially in this moment of great peril in, in the democracy of America, we should be seeing bigger changes at a place like the Times. I sat down with Joe Kahn and Dean Bacay on Thursday, two days after the announcement of Kahn's hiring, and we talked about objectivity, we talked about Wordle, we talked about how they both see the newspaper and what it's become. Can you guys shed some light on how this process of picking a new editor works? It's it's completely opaque in my mind. Is there is there a committee? Are there interviews? What happens? We we bring the cardinals together. I knew there was going to be a white smoke, smoke rest smoke. reference. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, it's I mean it's it's the publisher's call. It's AG's call. Um, and what it, what I what I tried to do was, and my commitment to him when I became the editor is that I would make sure there was a slate of of candidates, of people who um, who he could sort of think through and get to know. And 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 it's, it's, there there is no committee. It's essentially his his call. And he spent a lot of time with Joe, um, which Joe can talk about. And he spent a lot of time with you know, some other leaders in the newsroom. Because I don't, I don't think he just thought about it, <clears throat> nor did I, as picking the next executive editor. Obviously, that's the most important and the most visible choice. But I also think he wanted to make sure there was a, a, a leadership team overall to lead the place um, into the next generation. And, and the only thing I'll add is it's, uh, with AG, it's been much more, I mean, it's a very thoughtful process. I mean, we, we even start to think about like the next generation after Joe's generation, mm -hmm. which which obviously Joe is going to be the one to to nurture. But I mean I think we just he's just tried to identify a whole bunch of people who can lead the place going forward. But it's not it's not any more mysterious than that. And when when was when, when did all that start? When when did those conversations begin in earnest? I I think I'm trying to remember to get this right. I mean, I mean, the moment I chose Joe as managing editor, I think he was automatically a a pretty significant candidate. Um, and from that time on, I think AG spent. I mean, I encouraged, and he he wanted to spend a lot of time one on one with a handful of people, including Joe. So I I I, I honestly think it's sort of been an ongoing. Um, there was no memo writing. Um, it was an ongoing process that lasted a few years. A few um, years. So, Joe, um, you don't 
you can't pinpoint the time frame any more specific than that to say like, well, this is when it was really clear that that AG was at a kind of decision point. I could, but I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know being that specific. As Dean said, we were, you know, it felt like for a couple of years anyway, maybe several years. AG's a young publisher. He knew that he was going to need to make one of his first big decisions on the next editor. And as Dean said, not just the next editor, but the next generation of leadership, because they're, you know, along with Dean are, are some of our colleagues who, you know, we have a mandatory retirement age from our, from our masthead. So it's not a mystery, you know, it's, yeah. it's it, the, the fact that there will have to be a leadership transition. So that was very high on the list of things that, AG as a new publisher wanted to make sure that he had a very intentional process around. So he had a number of conversations. There were a number of people in the newsroom who got various degrees of feedback and 360 degree reviews and stretch assignments and challenges. Uh, What's a stretch assignment? What's a stretch assignment? You know, we've got a big problem. We'd love you to step in and try to solve it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're the leader of this initiative. Um, you know, uh, here's 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 some feedback on how you did in that situation, and 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 the sort of reaction. What was yours? Boy, there were a bunch. There were a bunch <laughs> of them. You know, he's, he's pretty well stretched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there were. Um, one one of them, honestly, was you know uh, some of the, you know some of the cultural challenges that we had uh, during the pandemic and 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 some of the uh, uh, racial tensions in American society that obviously had manifestations inside our newsroom in 2020, uh, when I was asked along with some other, uh, you know, future leaders of the place. Uh, to take a really hard look at our workplace culture, at our retention and recruitment policies, but also at the way we make journalistic decisions in the place. Uh, could we have a more open process? Could we be more transparent? Could we do better work to help people from more diverse backgrounds feel like they, you know, they have a path at the New York Times? Mm -hmm. That was one. That kind of thing came up. That wasn't the only one, but that that's an example of it. And and was that um, was that was one outcome of that the report that was presented to the to the staff? There was yes. You know, okay. So what's interesting about this traditional um, retirement age is that both of you are going to have ex almost exactly the same number of years in your tenure. Um, You're assuming I last. If, like assuming that. you live that long. Um, Dean, what is the sort of trajectory? What is the learning curve of this job? If you're in it for eight years, is it, you know, I assume it takes a couple of years to just figure out, get your sea legs, and then can you just talk about that? Yeah, I, I actually think it, it certainly takes, at least it took me. Remember, my, mine was um, chaotic. Yeah. You know, if you recall. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and that influenced how long it took me to build a team. Uh -huh. um, it meant, I mean, unlike in this case where where I think we had a leadership team being groomed, this was mine was chaotic, which I think was one reason, by the way, I thought we needed to make sure that um, this was not that. But it it took 
I mean, it took me a, at least a year to have a team around me. Um, the first year was spent, you know, there were buyouts and layoffs um, yeah. in the first couple of years. Yeah. But in terms of learning curve, I, I don't, I don't think. I think it certainly was at least three years before before I started walking into the newsroom thinking I had, you know, a handle. If you if you can have a handle on some of the how the, all the desks worked, who the best people were. Yeah. To be honest, I, I I didn't feel like I had, I didn't. I don't think I completely came into my own as an editor until. Joe became the managing editor, um, and and that was the point when I really felt that I had a partner. Um, um, I had great colleagues. I mean, Matt Purdy is one of the most brilliant editors ever to walk into this room. Um, but I don't think I, I don't think I had. I, I don't think you're fully baked as an editor until you have the team in place. To be honest, right? Because it's just not a one-brain job. It's just not. Yeah. Looking back on it now, like, what did you, what is, is there something that you'd wish somebody had told you about this job? And, and maybe even that you've gone to them and said, like, why in the hell didn't you say this? Like, this would have been so helpful. I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't one piece of information that somebody could have, could have given me. I don't, I don't think it was that. Um, I think it was, I don't think I quite realized until a year into the job just how much you know, the media business had changed. Yeah. In a lot of ways, editors are, um, I mean, I, I had worked at the LA Times and I was involved in business, but I, I don't think I don't think I fully understood just how much the world had changed. I, I got it intellectually, but I didn't get in my bones. I guess if, if somebody, but I'm not sure anybody had that full picture, if somebody had said to me the first day, look, this is a different institution than the one you ran at the LA Times, and this is just different. And you're going to have to understand the role of audience, the role of product, the role of technology. And you can't think of it the way you know all of your predecessors thought of it. I think if somebody could have said that to me, that would have you know saved me many months, if not years. But I'm not sure anybody had a, had that full picture then. Well, and also to your point, when you came in, the place was on fire. Um, That's right. So it wasn't. It that's was. A, right. that, you're talking about a luxury question. No, that's that's right. That's right. And I don't think anybody. I mean, look now. Now that feels everything I just said feels obvious. Um, it wasn't quite as obvious then. I mean, I, I mean, I, there were a lot of attempts at sort of making the New York Times a more viable institution those first couple of years. I think it's only in the last, you know, handful of years that that everything has sort of come together. And I think there's a clear vision of what kind of business the New York Times needs to be to thrive and what role journalism plays in that business. And it's a very different it's a very different calculation than when I took over the LA Times. Um, Joe, I want to ask you in a second, like what is the Times? What, what, what is this institution? But before we get to that, just one more note on the on the sort of decision to go for this job. Did did you have any pause at all about about the parts of the job that suck? Like, um, I mean, you've seen these videos of Dean being chased down the street by James O'Keefe, um, and it's such a public thing, and it's such a political thing. 
Um, was there any part, did, did any of that give you pause? Yes, uh, it did. You know, I've, I've seen the way, uh, I think there's, there is a very big difference between being the number one and being the number two in the New York Times newsroom. Uh, even though Dean and I worked very closely together and Dean, you know, just by the nature of the kind of editor he is, always wanted to have thought partners on, you know, the leading issues that we were facing or the big coverage decisions we were pondering or, you know, whatever staff dilemma we had. You know, there was nothing that felt to me, there never felt to me to be a wall between the managing editor and the executive editor in terms of the business of the New York Times newsroom. But there is a big gap between the public role that the top editor plays and the team around him or her in, in that role. And, and you know, that you're a target, uh, you're, you're more public facing, what you say is taken as uh, sort of institutional in it in its in its importance, uh, and that's a bigger responsibility than the one that I had. And we're in a toxic environment where the New York Times, for some, is seen as a uh, attacks on the New York Times is seen as a way to get traction on social social media. Uh, dirty tricks are part of the playbook of 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 some, you know, journalistic adjacent, you know, kind of attack groups. Uh, and you know, the New York Times editor is going to be heavily scrutinized and occasionally even harassed uh, the way Dean has been. So, I would be lying if I said that didn't bother me, or I'm looking forward to that part of the job. It is it is part of it is part of the risks of the job. I I would say that the benefits of the job uh, outweigh that, you know, the, you know, the, the journalistic platform that we have, the role that we have in American life. I, you know, I do think that this is an important institution. Uh, and I've been in this, the business of journalism my whole life. And this is an important, uh, as important moment uh, as ever to make sure that we get it right more often than we get it wrong. And that we aggressively cover, you know, the biggest issues of our time and report hard and present that in the most compelling way that the opportunity there to me outweighs the risks. But, but I'm very aware of the risks. So Dean was talking about this question of what is, you know, all the things that you now have to be, that you have to do. And, you know, that this isn't a, running a newspaper it's not even necessarily running a news organization. It seems just much broader than that. I mean, you you helped um, you helped shape the live um, uh, coverage, the live feature um, that that I've that I've seen referred to as 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 the Times attempt to be sort of CNN, um, which I think it does. Um, you have a documentary studio. You have an audio studio. You have um, you have a you know, a, a big lifestyle arm. Um, so what, it, what is this thing now? Is, is it um, sort of like, what do you call, is it information brand? Is it a, how do you articulate it? That's a fair question. I, I would, I'd slightly 
if you don't mind, you know, just try to refine a little bit what you said about about live, because I, I think that is something I have thought about a lot um, over the past couple of years. And, and we do say that we think we can fulfill a news need in the lives of our readers um, that address some of the role that you once went to linear television for, which is... You, you know, there's a major story unfolding and you want to know the latest thing and you want to see images of it. You know, you want to be taken to the scene. That is not a role that newspapers played in people's lives ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that our live experience should be compared, you know, in too much detail to a linear broadcast. That That's not really you know, what we mean by that. I I think that, you know, the best minds in the New York Times newsroom, you know, are really thinking hard about what real-time news means on on just a very dynamic digital platform, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's not a direct one-for-one comparison with, you know, a hosted show, you know, where you have reporters in the field standing up with a microphone and narrating. You know, we're, we're not looking to recreate literally what you think of as CNN. What we're looking to recreate in a very dynamic digital way with a large number of, you know, beat reporters and visual journalists and photographers and with the tools to bring some of the sort of real-time updates that you see sort of filling social media but from our own people in a value-added way and host that on our own platform in a way that feels natively digital yeah, and that really distinguishes the New York Times. So I, if, if, if live coverage ends up getting compared kind of moment to moment to what's on the screen on broadcast CNN, I, I would say that that is a failure. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to really reinvent it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, not not to belabor that too much, but I, no, I, I, I I think CNN is a competitor for the brain space, but we're not trying to recreate CNN on the New York Times. Probably. Yeah, I didn't mean that you were going to have a kind of Wolf Blitzer character sort of walk you through it. I, I sort of see the editors of the Times, at, I, I see them off screen as they're, they're sort of curating this feed for me, right? And and it's a real time feed and they're not they're not there in front of me, but but I think in success, I can feel them in the background. It's like, oh, the, this yeah. is what they thought was important that I know. I have a lot of other issues with it. I find it, like I get frustrated because I read stuff and then I want to read the whole story and it's hard to find and whatever. But I think like, um, I think that idea that <clears throat> like we, we are going to be, we, you know, and partly it's a great business development sort of time on site thing because i mean i found especially on stories like ukraine i just find myself going back just to see what's in the feed so um anyway that that's what i meant by cnn um yeah and i i think the way you you just you put it there is much closer to the way i think about it we have a curated feed filled with i hope you know very high quality journalism but also the full span of visuals that we can bring to help tell the story in as close to real time as we can get, you know, in a way that provides a New York Times version of that kind of need to know instinct that might have sent you to Twitter or that, you know, in a previous generation might have said, I got to turn on my television set right now. 
but hopefully we can provide something which is new, but which is a competitor, at least for that instinct, among readers who want really high quality news. Um, let me just 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 pick up just for a second again this idea of like what is what is a corollary to the times and I mean <clears throat> I was I was watching this Netflix news and I the thought occurred to me like you know that's that you know that's an attention for that's a that's a competition for attention um, that they they appear to be losing <laughs> um, and, it, and it sort of like made me think about like what are other ways of presenting this information and what are other ways of like doing storytelling um, that we should expect to see from the times? Um, Dean, was there something that like, that you, that was the kind of like crazy idea of like, let's try to present a story this way, you know, scratch and sniff or um, whatever <laughs> that, that you just f- weren't able to quite yeah. pull off. Oh, I was going to come up with ones I could pull off. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, let me mention one that w- that did work that felt very much um, scratch and sniff at the time. Um, it seems like a long time ago, but it was important. Snowfall. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, which was the first time we actually wrote a story to the visuals. I mean, it was the, the, I, mean I was deeply involved in those discussions, and it was the first time... The graphics department said, instead of writing a 10,000-word story, I think it was longer than that, and, and building the interactives around it, let's actually make the words deeply part of it and write the story around the interactives. That, that now seems like something that people do all the time. Yeah. That seemed insane. And I remember the first time I presented it to another editor, um, um, who I won't mention, the response was, "Are you smoking something?" Because mm-hmm. um, it seems so bizarre now. Now it seems it seems um, pretty common. I mean, the other sort of, I think, revolutionary way of telling stories and of, of investigating. I think the visual investigations team, um, which was you know the creation of the of the of the video department. Um, I, I I think, frankly, you know, as somebody who grew up in the world of investigative reporting, is actually revolutionary. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I mean, not, not only revolutionary in the long form stuff they do, but in the just the the drumbeat of coverage, um, in the war, um, in the ongoing war. It's I I just find that stunning to be able to. I had dinner with a group of them, um, a couple weeks ago, and I think it's like a great. Story. I mean, it's like the the arrival of the phone and the commercialization of satellites. Yeah, you know, meant these sort of wonderful people just sort of showed up in journalism, who knew how to do something that I, I wouldn't even have imagined um, five years ago. Yeah, Joe. What? So, what about going forward? Like, how do we? What's on your wish list? Well. There are some things that are, I think, are still storytelling forms where we're not quite performing, you know, the way we have the potential to in the long in the long term. I mean, I, I do think that we have a lot of growth still in marrying the kind of original reporting that we do with visual storytelling forms. I mean, I you know, Dean has has talked about some of those, you know, the the sort of multimedia kind of uh, 
enterprise spectaculars and also about video investigations, and those are growth areas for us. Uh, you know, I think that there are other ways to integrate, you know, the expertise that we have in beat reporting, uh, the on-the-ground presence that we have around the country and the world, uh, into our storytelling in ways that depart even further from sort of the traditional newspaper format, the article format of, of storytelling, which is not to say we're moving away from text or moving away from articles in a wholesale fashion, but to complement that with uh, uh, more immersive and, and often just sort of better uh, formats for being able to take the reader to a place, you know, to uh, hear the voices of people, as obviously you do in audio to see the scenes that you're describing. I, I still think we're at a fairly early stage in the evolution of digital journalism. We're not at the advanced stage. We're, we're at a very, very advanced stage in terms of print. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I print, print essentially is a, is a legacy product at this point. And although we've got some really fabulous, you know, print designers and, and editors who are all the time thinking about compelling print experiences. That's not where I'm spending most of my time. I'm spending most of my time in thinking about how we can use some of those tools that Dean described to bring even more of our journalism in the most impactful way before more people. Um, but can I just, just one thing about your original question, Kyle, that it, you know, the motivation for that, at least for, for, for Dean and me, um, would not be the same motivation that Netflix might have, right? Net, Netflix is literally, as you, as you said, trying to find a way, you know, to get people to spend more time watching Netflix, right? If, if people want, you know, 19... 1960s television sitcom series. Netflix wants to have as many of those as you could possibly imagine. If people want, you know, a, a period drama, you know, Netflix is going to have some of those. They're pretty agnostic about what they would call content. And we are not in the least bit agnostic about what we would call content. I mean, we, we provide a journalistic value, uh, not looking, not looking for for ways to keep people awake at night because we have so much great content that they could just consume on our platform. That, that to me, would kill the New York Times newsroom if we were asked to pursue that kind of an objective. The, the objective that we're pursuing is we're chasing stories, you know, and, and we're looking for the best ways to tell the stories that, you know, we think have journalistic value. Uh, you know, I don't know that there's a particular upper limit to that in term because I think there's a lot of great news and compelling issues in the world for us to invest in. But the motivation probably should, in my view, should not be I want another half hour of an addicted, you know, reader's time, you know, by introducing this new feature that will distract them a little bit more. Joe, and, you know, get them to. Joe, yeah. you bought Wordle. I didn't buy Wordle. The New York Times, the New York Times company bought Wordle. So that's why I said when you're talking to Dean and me, if you want to, and I, I bet she'd do it, if you want to get Meredith uh, on your show, I think she would be delighted. Um, 
Look, no, and but I, I, do I understand. Think... I, I'm not equating um, the times in Netflix in terms of the product, but I think you know, like <clears throat> to say that, like you know, you guys do identify areas where you want to grow both your journalism and your subscriber base, like you did with the Athletic, um, and or you've done with cooking, or you've done with any other number of things. Um, that you know, and I, I don't think I don't. Th- I'm not at all implying there's anything wrong with that, but I do yeah. think that like it is true that you sort of identify zones, right? And that's opportunities. One of the opportunities for I would say cooking is the marriage of a storytelling and kind of journalistic passion that a subset of our staff had with a digital opportunity to present that in a new and very useful way to what turns out to be a really large number of readers and subscribers. I think that's absolutely true. And I'm not at all shy about looking for ways to get particular sort of journalistic experiences in front of more people to drive subscription growth. I mean, that is, you know, there's nothing antithetical about subscription growth and, and journalism. And, you know, there's service journalism. The New York Times newsroom is big into that. We that's a growth area for us. There's various kinds of lifestyle journalism that have always been part of our portfolio we can continue to invest in. I'm only somewhat pushing back against the notion that Dean or I sit around saying we should like cook up this or that feature because it will distract people right. for a little bit. No, no, I understand. You know, I, I don't think that's a journalistic imperative. Let, let, me, um, let me get to domestic politics. Um, I mean, I have, a, I have a gut that tells me that this is, we're, gonna, we're entering an incredibly ugly period, um, both in the midterms and then what comes after, and that journalism and information, and especially places like the New York Times, are going to be even more at the center. I'm curious, sort of, um, I mean, you you know, you've seen this, the debate, the objectivity debate play out um, about, you know, sort of like how, how scared are you about the threat to democracy, um, depending on your level of fright what should news organizations like the Times do about that? What can they do about it? What 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 should they throw out um, if 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 they think that um, this is a real threat? Both of you, I mean, actually, as well as AG, um, have been have have been pretty um, clear that you know that that you're in the business of trying to sort of find the truth as best as you can figure it out and but through reporting and through facts and that this isn't a like one side of the other discussion i don't know did i summarize that right or not yeah if i if i can say one thing about um i I actually think that the discussion about objectivity is a healthy one um i i the it's it's funny to see it suddenly seem like a new debate. It's it's really not a new debate. It's a debate that comes up whenever there's sort of a large crisis. And and I think it's actually healthy for newsrooms to think hard about what they mean by objectivity and and or independence. I, I, I think that's I don't I don't that debate doesn't bother me. I think it's pretty clear that there are some significant threats to democracy. I think they're evident. Um, I think the fact that um, that a significant number of Americans 
have become convinced that Joe Biden didn't win the election when he clearly did win the election. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that's an important story. Um, and, and, and frankly, I, I, know, I know some people disagree with this. I think we've t- told that story pretty forcefully. Um, I do think that sometimes people don't value enough the importance of reporting and telling that story. I think there's been a lot of discussion about language and framing. And I, and I just think that our role, frankly, I mean, if you use Trump's finances, there was a tremendous amount of speculation about Trump's finances, a tremendous amount of um, you know speculation about whether he was involved in money laundering, et cetera. The, the only truly deep reporting about Trump's finances, I would argue, appeared in the pages of the New York Times. So after I, he was already I, elected, after he was well, no, actually, the first scoop about his taxes came before he was elected. If you remember the, the, Sue, the, Craig the Sue, Sue Craig thing in the middle. That's right. But the um, deep dive kept, came after because it took that long. <laughs> as, as somebody who was deeply involved in it, it yeah. didn't. We didn't sit on it. It literally took no, took that long. So, but I so I, I guess I guess what I would say is I don't I, I welcome a, a, a full body discussion over objectivity. What it, but I do believe what I, what I believe is that reporting and being open minded in going into any reporting exercise is the way to win trust from people and is the way to find stuff out. And and but I do of of course I think there's a threat to democracy right now. Let me ask it this way. Um, I, I saw a Pew polls that said something like more than 90% of New York Times readers identify themselves as Democrats. Um, do you think that, that I mean, and, and we've all, we all acknowledge that there's a significant number of especially conservative Americans who don't, don't trust outlets like the New York Times and may not ever. Are those people winnable to you? Like, do you, is there something you could do? Is there, do you think that there's, is that an audience that you're interested in trying to get back in the fold? And if so, what would you have to do to do that, Joe? Go ahead. I'm I'm glad you asked that one, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) I guess what I, what I would say to that is, um, you know, I'm definitely interested in continuing to increase, you know, the readership and the reach of the New York Times, including uh, among people who do not identify as Democrats, right? I mean, I, I, you know, the idea that we are narrowly targeting people who have a political identity as Democrats um, would never really enter my mind. I do think that. Um, um, you know, the idea that we're going to reach, um, people who have gone down the rabbit hole of, of, you know, partisan propaganda, which among other things targets the New York times, uh, and somehow, you know, persuade them through targeted articles that were a friend, not a foe, you know, is a little bit unrealistic. But I think that there are actually very large numbers 
of open-minded Americans and open-minded nonpartisan readers globally who are in the market for genuine independent journalism that offers high-quality reporting and analysis of the major events of the day uh, and are not in partisan rabbit holes just firing at each other. Uh, and, you know, it's very hard to measure those numbers, but the, the real partisanship that you see, on, including on Twitter, you know, is really a tiny percentage of the population that we're trying to reach with our journalism. I don't deny that you can come up with different ways of slicing the demographics of our readership and saying, you know, you only reach so-called Democrats or very few self-identifying conservatives. But I, I believe that we do and can reach a large number of people who are not partisans in the fights of the day but want to be informed and are curious. And we should continue to invest in really good quality journalism with that reader in mind, not with the most partisan meter in mind. So, you know, I don't expect, you know, well, actually, maybe he does. I, you should ask, does Sean Hannity have a subscription to the New York Times? Maybe he does so that he can I bet he does. try to figure out his, you know, daily targets. Um, it seems, to be, but, it seems but, to be the main thing he reads to figure out what to do. <laughs> it may well be. So, um, so that's, yeah. I mean, Dean, do you, do you regret that this is the case, that the the audience is so tilted in one direction? Um, look, I think we have to have a broad audience. I don't think it's healthy. I mean, it was a, a century ago that news organizations started to try to have broad audiences, you know, that the days of like a left-leaning paper and a right-leaning paper sort of, sort of went away. I think, we, I think it's unhealthy, honestly, to have an audience that's not as broad and as rich as possible. I think it's like, I think it's like not healthy for the institution. Um, if you believe that you're supposed to listen to your readers and try to serve your readers, if you only have one kind of reader, I just don't think, I don't think that's healthy for us. But more importantly, I don't think it's healthy for the society. I think the number of news organizations that can do the kind of big ambitious journalism the New York Times and a, and a, and a smaller number can do I think if those institutions are only read by one kind of person, I don't think that's really good. That can't be good for the society, right? If one, if one kind of reader only reads whether it's the Times or the Post and comes away with one view of mask wearing or COVID and everybody else reads something else, I can't imagine anything more. And that, that's partly where we are right now. I can't anything, imagine anything more disastrous for the society. So I think we have to have a broad a broad audience. People, I don't think you pander to your audience. I don't think, as Joe said, that you go out and create stuff to, to you know, get some segment. But part of the argument for being independent is you want, and again, not, not, I don't expect that we have, we don't have plans to go after the QAnon reader. But part of the argument for being independent is that you want to serve the reader. You sort of want to serve the society, right? You want to serve the larger society. And I don't know how you serve the larger society if you're just writing for one small group of people. What is your, for either of you, what is your sense of where the newsroom 
sits on this question. I noticed a, um, and you can't talk about it in a monolithic way, but I did note a, a tweet from Nicole Hannah-Jones um, over the weekend in which she was, she was talking about the need for a massive reset of how we cover what's happening in the country. She said, quote, I believe we'll look back and be appalled at the failures of journalism in this period. What she was getting at was sort of acknowledging this sort of de- democracy at risk question and whether institutions like the Times are adequately responding. Um, Joe, or e- either of you actually, sort of what is your read of of whether the need to sort of bring the newsroom along to your point of view is going to become a bigger chunk of your time? I think it's a big chunk of my time. I do. I think it's, uh, you know, we have to, we have to try to hold two slightly contradictory thoughts in our mind at the same time. One is, as Dean said, there really are genuine threats to democracy in this country and in other countries. There are influential figures in this society who would be eager to fatally undermine democratic institutions and even the legitimacy of the vote in order to hold on to power, right? It, it's, it's just true. It's a reality. And we have to cover that really aggressively. At the same time, I think we also have to keep in mind that politics hasn't died. It's still alive. There is still politics in the country. The Republicans did not win the governorship of Virginia because they killed democracy in Virginia. They won the governorship of Virginia because they out-politicked the Democrats, right? I mean, there are politics going on. We do not think the Republicans are going to do really well in the midterm elections because they've somehow successfully gamed and undermined, you know, the voting system in the United States. There's a legitimate argument that over the decades, there's been a withering uh, of, of the integrity of the vote through gerrymandering, for example. And we cover that aggressively. The Democrats do some of it. The Republicans in more states have done more of it, right? That's, that, that, I think, is factual. Um, but the idea that the only thing the New York Times should cover at the expense of the politics that are motivating voters around the country is the threat to undermine democratic system and that therefore everything on, if you're a Democrat, the other side of the fence, the Republican side of the fence, is nothing but a threat to democracy, is the formula to not having any more independent journalism in the United States. I, I honestly think that if we become a partisan organization exclusively focused on threats to democracy and we give up our coverage of the issues, the social, political, and cultural divides that are animating participation in politics in America, uh, we will lose the battle to be independent. At the same time, if we don't put some of our best reporters on really looking hard at the attempts to fatally undermine the integrity of the vote and the institutions that, de- that, that, uh, that, that protect democracy in this country, we're not doing our job uh, as a leading news organization. Those are slightly contradictory thoughts, and we have to motivate a staff to be able to do both of those things. The only the only thing I'll add is to the question of how much um, of Joe's time will be spent managing that with the staff. It it's not un, it's 
it's if you look into history, there have been a lot of moments in, in history when the editor of the New York Times or the Post or any other organization has had to manage a staff that where people disagree sometimes, right? I mean, picture what it must have been like to be the editor of the New York Times um, during, the Viet during the Vietnam War when there was a draft, when there was a staff, mostly men, um, who were draft eligible, right? I think, I think the, if you want a new, you should have a newsroom that reflects society. I mean, that's, that's the essence of diversity, right? And if you get a newsroom that reflects society, you can also get a newsroom um, where people are going to sometimes disagree with us. Our job is to listen to them, to hold on, as Joe described, to the values that are important to the place, but also listen to them, and sometimes change things in response to them. Um, but it doesn't bother me that there's a, you know, that we have a newsroom. There is no institution in America right now that's not a little bit restive. What you have to do is hold on to your values, stick with your values, and figure out what things should change. And some things, of course, should change. Really appreciate both of you coming on. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kyle. Take care. Bye-bye. You can follow all our coverage of The Times and everybody else in media at CGR.org. Watch us on Facebook and Twitter and read our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. 